Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the CIO Fixed Income Roundtable Series here on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Every other month, we do like to catch up with CIO's Fixed Income team for a timely discussion around the drivers behind asset class performance. We talk about trends, positioning, and deliver a near-term outlook. So joining us for the roundtable, glad to welcome back Leslie Falconio, Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy for the Americas. Joining us as well, we do have Barry McElinden, Frank Saleo, and Alina Gallant, Senior Fixed Income Strategists for the Americas, as well as Kathleen McNamara, Senior Municipal Strategist for the Americas. So with that, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's roundtable. Welcome back. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. And, you know, thanks for everyone listening in. This is our third podcast, and we uh, appreciate the success that we've had. And and we've had, I have to say, some very good timing with these calls. So I know that this one will be, um, I think, very valuable to our investors. But just to give a just a quick big picture overview to start, I mean, as we know, you know, the, the market is susceptible to certain pockets of vulnerability, not just because the Fed has tightened 10 consecutive times, which, which has left the upper bound at five and a quarter, but also because we have this diverging opinion in the second half of the year as the market continues to price in, you know, which today is about 60 basis points, you know, of easing. And this is due to the continued tightening of financial conditions and, and tightening of lending conditions, which is impeding both or expected to impede both the consumer and corporations going forwards, particularly in the second half of the year as borrowing costs rise. Now, with CIO's view that more than likely the Fed is going to maintain a higher for longer view, um, but we do see some pockets of vulnerability, and, and particularly given the fact of what's happened, you know, since our last podcast and since what's happened since uh, March. I mean, we know that we've had three banks fail, and those three banks have a combined asset value worth more than 2% of GDP. We've seen a couple of cracks in the the credit um, component of fixed income, where we're seeing a bit of higher defaults and lower recovery rates. And obviously, we have the oncoming debt ceiling, which we know the X date being you know June 1st has really brought some angst, particularly within the T-bill market. However, with volatility comes opportunity, and that's really what we're here to discuss today. So I really want to to start with our first sector specialist, you know, Frank Saleo, who's been obviously who's written some really great pieces and some published some really some very good work in terms of the volatility seen within his sector, particularly between financials and non-financials. So, so Frank, let's let's start off with you and and you know you know as, as we as we talked about, there's been a lot of volatility in the preferred sector. You know what's been causing this volatility and what's your outlook? Yeah, thanks, Leslie. Um, well, just, just take a step back. It's really been a wild year already, and we're not even at the halfway point yet. Uh, preferreds were off to a very strong start to the year. If we look at $25 par preferreds, for example, they were up 13.7% in January, so really a, a very strong performance to, to start the year. Then in February, concerns arose that the, the Fed would have to continue hiking rates maybe towards 6%, and that pressured preferreds somewhat, but they really suffered in March uh, and again in early May, and those pullbacks aligned with the banking failures that you mentioned in the introduction there. We had the banking failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank in March, 
And then uh, First Republic Bank failed in, in early May. And that's created a lot of volatility and stress in the market for regional bank security specifically in, in recent months. But, you know, banks comprise a large portion of the issuer composition for preferreds. In fact, roughly two-thirds of all preferreds in the U.S. preferred market are issued by U.S. banks. So there is an important uh, connection to consider with the banking sector. Uh, now, we did see in April, uh, uh, since we last spoke on this podcast in March, we did see in April the preferred market stabilized and began to recover after the first wave of bank failures. Preferreds were up by about up by about 2% in April, so pretty decent uh, uh, gains in April. But it took another leg down after the failure of First Republic earlier this month. So um, overall, that banking stress, that's been uh, continuing since March, really, it, it, it has reduced uh, the risk of continued Fed rate hikes on the one hand, but on the other hand, it raises the risk of further volatility from the banking sector, those pockets of vulnerability, as you mentioned at the outset, near term. Um, and we feel like we just kind of, uh, when it comes to preferred specifically, but probably other areas of fixed income as well, we just kind of traded one near-term risk for another. So our outlook for preferreds is is one of near-term caution, long-term opportunity. Uh, we think we could continue to see bouts of banking sector volatility as we head into the second half year, uh, second half of the year. Um, just last week, PacWest Bank announced a 10% drop in deposits during the prior week. But then again, this week, regional bank stocks have been rallying as Western Alliance Bank announced an increase in their deposits. So, uh, Leslie, clearly there's some, some cross-currents there. I don't think we're fully out of the woods yet. That's, so I think we'll still have, in the near term, these pockets of vulner, vulnerability for preferreds emanating from the regional bank sector. But over time, we should move toward greater stability and broader opportunities in the preferred space as confidence in the regional bank sector is restored. So with that said, Frank, I mean, like we're, as we were talking about, and as you, you know, you know, uh, discussed in um, just just what you're saying in terms of pockets of vulnerability and volatility, you know, with the theme of you know volatility creates opportunity, you know, what kind of opportunity do you see within preferreds, or even if you or if you do think there is opportunity within preferreds, or is this pocket of vulnerability could be a bit deeper than what we're assessing right now? Gotcha. No, absolutely. I think that. Um, the, the, uh, the stress in the regional banking sector has really led to a, a pullback in preferreds more broadly. Uh, so overall, valuations do look pretty attractive, and I generally think the overall sector will generate uh, positive returns over the next 12 to 18 months. So current valuations in the, in the sector, broadly speaking, do represent a, somewhat of a buying opportunity with that time frame in mind. Uh, although, again, you know, we could see more choppiness near term. But in the near term, uh, large bank preferreds, preferreds issued by those uh, what are called the U.S. Uh, systemically important banks or, or the big money center banks, those preferreds should offer greater price stability even in the near term. And these preferreds are offering yields of roughly 6% for $25 par fixed rate preferreds and about 7% for the $1,000 par variable rate preferred. And most of them are trading at discounts to par. Um, now, a lot of that 
uh, has been because of uh, the epic surge in Treasury rates that we experienced last year. So many of the uh, much of the price decline and, and the discounts to par really opened over the past year uh, because of that powerful headwind created by the surge in Treasury rates. And of course, preferreds can be very interest rate sensitive, especially the $25 par fixed rate variety. And rate sensitivity among fixed rate preferreds uh, actually rises as interest rates rise. But we're at a point now where duration extension has basically run its course, and we're getting to the to the uh, to the end of that. It's about as high as it can get, essentially. Uh, when we look at duration, duration again being a measure of interest rate sensitivity, and now that higher duration might actually work in our favor, and it could become a tailwind instead of a headwind as interest rates uh, peak uh, in the months ahead and possibly drift lower. So. In terms of opportunity, a discounted fixed rate preferred would benefit the most from declining rates, and they offer yields, as I mentioned earlier, of roughly 6%, particularly those of the large money center banks. And you've got some price appreciation potential there if they trade closer to par. Meanwhile, variable rate preferreds inherently have less duration, less rate sensitivity, but these could also benefit from a scenario where the Fed keeps short-term rates higher for longer. As you mentioned earlier, many of these $1,000 par variable rate preferreds are also trading at discounts, so they have the potential to either see their coupons reset higher in a higher for longer short-term rate environment if they're not called, or you benefit from the built-in price appreciation if they are called, since, again, they trade at discounts. And these, uh, uh, these scenarios are taking into account when we look at the average yield with those $1,000 or variable rate preferreds, which are about 7%. So, Leslie, that's where investors can look now to take advantage of the buy opportunities that may be uh, available in the space today. Well, that's great advice, Frank, and that was very thorough. I appreciate that. And, and you know, I do think that when you think about that 6 to 7%, you know, it's been a long time since we've been there. So it's just good to see some of these opportunities Absolutely. going forward. <laughs> and, you know, uh, Barry, I want to sort of shift over to you now, you know, because first off, as, as we know, you know, uh, Investment-grade corporates as a sector is one of the favored sectors within CIO. We have a, a you know, a most preferred within our allocation. But as we sort of go from what Frank was talking about with financials, we also know that you've been, you know, very, um, you know, steadily watching what's happening in financials and investment-grade corporates as well. So I just I wanted to lead off with, to you with the same kind of question: Is that what kind of pockets of vulnerability are you seeing within investment-grade corporates right now? Sure. So we're definitely paying close attention to potential fundamental vulnerabilities. And here, I think it's important to parse out investment grade into both financials and non-financials. On the financial side, obviously, we saw the uh, impact uh, of the regional banks that was mentioned. Um, we do note, though, that they were idiosyncratic in terms of some of the depositor concentration risk in those banks, as well as the amount of uninsured deposits. But certainly anytime there's significant bank failures, it's going to have an impact uh, on credit more broadly. And, you know, we think about financials in terms of investment grade, you know, banks are about a quarter of the market. Uh, and if you, if you go beyond the other parts of the financial sectors, like insurance companies, REITs, you can get as high as 40 to 50 percent, depending upon the index. So, you know, as financials go, really so does, uh, so does IG. And it's, and the repricing that you've seen in financials is a, a large reason why IG spreads 
around the 150 basis point mark are where they are now. You know, they have um, increased uh, over the last few weeks a bit. Uh, that's really driven more by the financial spread than the, than the non-financial spread. I would say if you're thinking about fundamental concerns for non-financial companies, you know, things still look pretty good uh, when it comes to their balance sheet metrics. Um, you know, most investment grade companies have uh, ample liquidity, uh, mostly fixed-rate obligations on the balance sheet. You know, it's not to say that the higher for longer funding environment that we're in uh, isn't going to be a stressor, but certainly most companies uh, can withstand, you know, that environment. And their fixed uh, interest coverage still hovers kind of north of the 10, 10 times range for investment grade companies. You know, that's pretty robust in terms of uh, being able to manage your, your interest costs. Obviously, though, you know, this higher for longer rate environment, it's one where we don't expect like fundamentals to improve. You know, they're going to at best probably trend sideways. Um, and the real question is going to be like how much, you know, damage is inflicted on, on balance sheets until the Fed actually does pivot into easing mode. But, you know, our, our takeaway for investment grade is that we don't think it should be uh, really, really that much, you know, given, as I mentioned, kind of the, the conversational nature of the asset class. And then, you know, eventually, as, as we do get uh, into a Fed easing mode um, that maybe ends up closer to somewhere where the Fed's, you know, neutral rate is, we think that, you know, investment grade should deliver, you know, pretty strong total returns of the coupon, but then also some price appreciation. So, you know, for those investors, again, because investment grade corporates has been, has been a, a preferred uh, sector for CIO, and, and for those investors that have sort of left a little bit too much cash on the sidelines, and now maybe I have the ability to get you know, a little bit more wider spread. You know, where do you see sort of opportunities in IG going forward? Yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that despite all the, the, the market action uh, over the past couple of months, you know, the investment grade curve is still relatively flat and yields still hover about 5% or slightly higher. Um, so the yield landscape kind of, you know, maintains, um, you know, pretty attractive from that regard. And, you know, CIO, we've, we've had a high quality fixed income recommendation, um, favoring a barbell approach of both the short end as well as intermediate maturities. And I think, you know, investment grade corporates, um, still fit right in the heart of this category. So, you know, you can look at the short end of the curve and, you know, capture good income with, relatively limited price sensitivity, uh, which, you know, would limit any downside risk. On the flip side, though, you know, you're not going to get the appreciation that you could get in bonds of, of longer maturity. So that's where the other part of the barbell comes into play, you know, bonds with more intermediate duration. And that's where we think you can earn your coupon, you know, plus some incremental um, price gains as the treasury yield curve environment or yield environment, um, you know, does uh, decline. So, you know, for investors um, who maybe, um, the, maybe the excitement of the yield uh, attainable in corporates has dissipated a bit. You know, we were at these levels, you know, last fall, we were actually a little bit higher for intermediate maturities. I'm getting the sense that maybe the, the initial excitement has dissipated, but, you know, our, our main recommendation as far as opportunities is, really stick to that barbell about the short end and intermediate maturities. If, you know, if you haven't done so already or you've been waiting for either, you know, yields to maybe potentially rise, um, you, you know, I, I think um, we still think there's, there's ample opportunity at, at these levels of, of 5% really across the yield curve. 
That's great, Barry. Thanks so much. Um, and now I, I just want to shift over to um, Alina and high yield. And as Barry had mentioned, you know, some of the carrier yield and IG might have you know dissipated a bit since you know you know what we saw in the beginning of the year. But we know that the carry and high yield is still very ample, but not without certain costs, you know, if you will, given whether it's you know increasing defaults or lower recovery rate that we've seen. We've seen a lot of headlines, you know, is credit cracking and all these kinds of negative things that, that scroll across your Bloomberg. But what do you think in terms of or what you're seeing in terms of the pockets of vulnerability and high yield right now? Thanks, Leslie. Um, you're absolutely right. And as the economy slows, high yield companies tend to feel the impact more than investment grade. And that's just by nature. High yield companies are smaller. They're higher levered. They tend to be more aligned on outside capital. So as lending tightens, the ability to refinance debt becomes more difficult. And that's particularly so for companies that are maybe struggling with revenues or margins or just feeling an impact of a slowing economy. And so what we're seeing now is that defaults are picking up. We had several defaults just this past Monday, and we expect defaults to keep rising from here. Now, to give you some context around that, high-yield default rate was at 2.4% at the end of April. We think that after the recent defaults, we're going to be trending towards about 3% over the next few months. And we think that it's likely to go higher from there. Now, granted, 3% is still relatively low, but we are coming off of a very, very low default rate. A year ago, default rate stood at 1%. So the trajectory is clearly rising. And then we're also seeing an uptick in downgrades. At the peak, so let's go back to mid-2021, upgrades, and I'm talking about rating upgrades by the rating agencies, exceeded downgrades by margin. Now you have net downgrades, so downgrades above upgrades, that represent about 15% of the high-yield index. And then if we just look over the past three months, we had twice as many downgrades as upgrades. So you can see that between the defaults and the rating actions, you can see that there's clearly fundamental weakness in the high-yield market. And then if we look at performance, the spread on the high-yield index has actually been essentially flat year-to-date. We're around 480 basis points. But if we look at triple Cs, which is the riskiest part of the high-yield market, the spread is actually 84 basis points tighter year-to-date. Triple C's have way outperformed this year. They've returned 6.6%, and that's versus 3.9% for the high yield market, and this is year to date. So in my opinion, this is really where the pockets of vulnerability are in the high yield universe. Yeah, that's that's great, Alina. And it, you know, as we know, I mean, we have a neutral weighting in in high yield as a sector and then but we were you know although we might have to your point some pockets of vulnerability going forward we cannot deny that there is a lot of carrier yield for investors there so we remain neutral to sector but within that neutrality if you will what kind of opportunities do you see going forward in high yield for people that you know might be have cash on the sidelines may not have quite a neutral weighting yet so what do you what do you think going forward is where people should allocate some cash uh, it's important to note that fundamentally, while things are getting weaker and, you know, we talked about defaults and downgrades rising, we're actually coming off of a very, very strong peak. Net leverage, for example, 
uh, while it's picked up slightly recently, it is still only 3.4 times. This is the lowest since about 2012. And interest coverage, it, it is actually down about half a turn year to date. It is still at 5.3 times. This is better. This is the best interest rate coverage ratio that we've seen over the past 10 years. So with fundamentals coming off of a very healthy peak, we think that there are companies that are well positioned and with yields where they are, are now actually offering really good opportunities. I'll give you an example. We recently published a report on airlines. Now, as we know, demand for travel continues to rise. This is now especially true internationally now that those borders are open. Airlines are projected to see strong growth in EBITDA this year. They're also sitting on large cash balances now. So we think that select airline bonds have very good value here. And that is just an example. We think that the same is true for select companies in many other sectors as well. Uh, we've talked about MLPs before that are kind of in the same boat. Away from just kind of select companies in sectors where we think they're going to be resilient and are offering attractive yields, we think for some investors, it may also make sense to look at some of the shorter dated maturities here in high yield, again, sticking with the higher quality, resilient companies. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and as we sort of shift to the higher credit embedded sector, I want to move to, you know, one of, one of a bit of higher quality and, and shift over to Kathleen um, within municipals. And Kathleen, I know you've written some really great stuff in terms of, you know, the impact communities on whether it's regional bank failure, failures or debt ceiling. And I know you really you continuously publish some, some very, some great material. And I hope that people um, are reading what you're producing. But one of the things I do want to just, you know, start with you that is that given the fact that, you know, we do have sort of this, you know, up in quality or higher quality bias that also includes the media market as well, but, you know, they are susceptible um, as with other higher quality, you know, uh, assets, whether it's volatility in the rates market or in this or in spread sectors. So how is the muni market or what are you seeing some impacts from uh, what we see these regional bank failures that we saw in March and even ongoing, and particularly the debt ceiling as the debate continues before the, the June X date? Uh, sure, Leslie. I mean, we are seeing some knock-in effects for the meeting market from both of those issues, as a matter of fact. We are witnessing some bouts of volatility. Um, that being said, I don't expect these issues to cause a sustained and meaningful disruption to the overall market. Um, regarding the fallout from the regional bank failures, the FDIC bank selling of the muni portfolios is now into its third week. You may recall that the FDIC pretty much communicated that the bank's muni portfolios would be sold over the course of a few weeks rather than at an abrupt, you know, fire sale. So we are seeing, you know, some downward price pressure in the longer dated low coupon segment of the market, um, since that represents the structure of many of the bonds that are now being liquidated. Against that backdrop of very tight new issuance in the first four months of the year, you would think a pickup in secondary supply should be easily absorbed. However, that's not the case for two reasons. First, the discount structure is not highly sought after by the dominant buyer base of private clients. And second, the pace of primary market issuance that appeals to a broader set of buyers has increased over the past two weeks. So we're kind of seeing a supply increasing from the primary market and the secondary market at the same time, creating volatility, and as you said earlier, also creating some opportunities. 
So, you know, while that impact is, you know, limited, we do believe that, you know, this ongoing stress in the regional banking sector is something that we have to continue to monitor. Regarding the debt ceiling debate, um, as you know, you know, we've seen a lot of rate volatility at the short end of the Treasury market um, in recent days. That has spilled over to prompt a repricing of short-dated munis. That's not too surprising to us since the muni valuations at the front part of the curve had, had reached very, very expensive levels. So at the end of last month, thus they were poised for a pullback, and they're now at much more attractive levels. So given that pullback that we're seeing in the short end, and as we sort of link into again the opportunities in the marketplace, you know where where do you see opportunities in the munis, you know, for the rest of the year? Uh, sure. I mean, right now, you know, we're in the midst of of volatility, you know, mostly on the front end, but also on the long end. As I was, you know, mentioning about the additional supply in the marketplace. Um, so what we are encouraging investors to do is to seek income opportunities over the next few weeks um, ahead of the heavy summer muni redemption season. Now, when the redemptions are, are very, very high, uh, the market, muni market tends to do well and supply tends to dry up. So we think now is a good time to start looking for values. In terms of positioning muni portfolios, we continue to favor a barbell portfolio in the current environment. We see some value in that one to three-year area of the muni curve for liquidity and the investment opportunity yields on AA, high-quality muni's are around the 3% level. We also see value in the 13-year spot and beyond in order to lock in yields for a predictable stream of tax-free income. In credit, we retain our view to stick with high-quality muni's rather than lower-rated credits in the face of some recessionary risks. And speaking about high-quality bonds, our credit team does uh, continue to favor municipal electric revenue debt as one example. And if we look to see where yields are in that space, yields right now are sitting at close to 4% on the long end of the curve. Um, by comparison, that's about 50 basis points in incremental yield over AAA benchmark, and that could uh, translate to a taxable equivalent yield of close to 8% for an investor in the highest marginal tax bracket. So uh, we do think that that represents some good value for income-oriented investors with longer-term time horizons. That's great, Kathleen. Thank you. And, and this is this was, is a great summation of our sector specialists. And, and just to, you know, um, emphasize CIO's overall outlook, we continue to have a most preferred in fixed income versus equity. And within the fixed income sector, we do have a most preferred in, you know, those higher quality um, type sectors such as investor grade corporates. However, you know, one of the, one of the, um, goals that we learned from, you know, this podcast is that even those sectors that we are currently neutral, such as preferred and high yield, you know, there are pockets of opportunities that we continue to see and will continue to see as we have these sort of bouts of vulnerability, which more than likely is not going to dissipate anytime soon, particularly as we have a market that is convinced that the Fed is going to pivot, um, you know, fairly early after a pause, which is currently not CIO's view. But again, I mean, we, we still are data dependent with the overall Fed outlook, but more than likely, the higher for longer will persist. And, and the next hurdle that we have to face will be that June 1 X date. And, you know, otherwise than that, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you in the next podcast. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the global wealth management business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.